All right. Good morning, everyone. You guys can have a seat whenever you're ready. It's so good to see you all on this President's Day weekend. Thank you for being here. Um, this is an exciting day. We're, uh, we're launching into kind of a brand new phase, not just uh, series-wise, but just structure-wise in the way that we do church. Um, here at Resonate, we like to mix up kind of the average way you do church almost every year or so, it seems like. But uh, this one, I'm really, really pumped about. So not only starting a new series, uh, which is called Conversations, which this slide, now that it's so big, it's just a little assaulting, so I'll, I'll fix that. <laughs> but uh, lots to take in there, and I think there's some typos in there. I had to type it in Photoshop. There's no correction. So anyway, uh, hunt for those while I'm speaking. But uh, we're, we're calling this series Conversations, and it's an entire series uh, on the idea of prayer. Because uh, as we were talking as a strategy team, we were trying to figure out uh, what we should be talking about as a church. We realized uh, we, this cool sort of snappy line of uh, how we talk to God really shapes the way we think about God. How we talk to God really shapes the way we think about God. Uh, and in that, uh, prayer is one of the most confusing, sort of weird, uh, mystical, awesome things that we do, uh, but it's also, it's, it's also the most confusing, it's also kind of the most hard to get your head around, and it seems like, and I don't know about you, I was raised in the church, my dad was a pastor, I've been doing this for like 30 years, it, it's never something, except for like when you're in Sunday school and they teach you to kind of fold your hands, close your eyes, uh, and, and just speak, it's never something that's outright explained um, in a really clear fashion. Uh, and the reason that I think it's not outright explained in a clear fashion is because it's not very clear uh, to begin with, which is an awesome thing, but it can really throw us off. I don't think there's any bigger um, piece that I have conversations with throughout the week uh, with people uh, or just over the years. One of them is church that, that could burn people out, and then maybe the, the church hurt them in some kind of a way, and so now they just want nothing to do with faith or religion, and that's a really painful one. And Resonate, I hope, is a space where we're trying to restore uh, that sort of version of church for anybody that's been burned by that. But the other thing uh, that I find people lose this God thing over, lose the faith in this Jesus person, uh, is over prayer. Because when prayers don't get answered, or when we don't get the answer that we like in prayer, or we don't hear anything in prayer, it just seems like we're talking into thin air and nothing is going on, then all of a sudden we stop believing that prayer really works, and then once we stop believing that prayer really works, it's just a snowball effect, and we can, we can end up just with a total lack of belief in general. So how we talk about God is monumentally important, and how we talk to God is monumentally important. So over this series, it's not just going to be about how we talk to God, but how we talk to each other. Uh, so that's why we're calling it Conversations, because the whole three-service model is all built around having conversations, not just with God, uh, but with each other as a church. So there's three ways we're going to do that. So the first service, don't worry, we're not doing three identical services and you have to sit through three of these. Uh, we're going to do three different types of service. We're going to kind of redefine what a church service is. Uh, so we'll do the normal one here. It'll be a little bit shorter. <laughs> this morning is not a little bit shorter. The sermon got a little long. But uh, from now on, it will be a little bit shorter. Uh, and we're, we're probably going to do one last song and then about five minutes less than me. Uh, and we're, we're going to save time because our second service, which is every bit as important as this service, every bit as important, uh, is going to be breakfast. And so I was trying to think, how can we throw a breakfast on a church that is on a budget, folks? <laughs> how do we throw breakfast every single morning without breaking the bank? Uh, and I stumbled onto Amazon and found out that you can get these giant griddles for 22 bucks. And I was like, okay, we're going to do pancakes every Sunday throughout the series until you guys hate pancakes and we can switch it up entirely. But um, 
We're going to have pancakes every single morning. That's free food for anyone, and I mean anyone. Uh, so if you want to invite anyone into this space, uh, it's a free breakfast. It's a free hang. It's not elaborate. It's just going to be some pancakes and some fruit or something like that, um, perhaps bacon if we get real crazy. Uh, but that's going to be every single Sunday morning. I know I just promised something I can't deliver. But every single morning, uh, we're going to do this together. Uh, and the whole point of that is we, we see new faces come through this community. West LA is just like a, a revolving door of human beings. Um, the average tenure for someone here is a year and a half. That, that's a true state. That's from City Hall in Santa Monica, at least. I can't speak for all of West LA, but Santa Monica, a year and a half people land here. Uh, and so over the course of almost three years of being a church now, uh, we've seen that drastically change. Just in a year and a half, you see the congregation shift in the people. So I want us to be relationally as strong as we can for that year and a half and give it all that we have and surrender ourselves to each other and really get to know each other. And to do that, uh, we need to create space to actually have these conversations. And I know we're in L.A. It's really difficult to commit to a small group. It's really difficult to commit to church every Sunday morning. But when we're here, we can make the most of it. So we'll be uh, having conversations over here on one big table. Um, so we're probably going to have to add some seats to that, um, but we'll, we'll figure that out. But one big table, not separate tables, we're all going to be around uh, the single table having a conversation. The other part of that during this service is that every other week we're going to have someone come up, either on video or if they're really brave, come up and do it live um, and tell their story. Just so that if you're new here and this is your first time, you can leave going, well, at least I know that one person. At least I got to know someone, and I got not just to know them, but I really got to know their story. And then maybe if you, as you go to the second service, you can sit next to them and ask them questions about their deep, dark story, and it'll be even better. But uh, all of that to say, it, it helps create stickiness. It helps create a space where we can come into and we can go, I know people here. I'm not just, I'm not just in and out, but I know people here. And then finally, the third service uh, is going to be, we have three small groups going right now, um, and that smaller group will be the third service. So a smaller group will be a uniting of all of those small groups once a month, uh, and we'll do it uh, in March, and the date, I was supposed to look that up. I will say that at the end. Uh, but we're going to throw a pizza party at my tiny one-bedroom apartment, and everybody is invited. My wife loves it when I do this. Uh, everybody is invited. Uh, and it's not just like we're going to order Domino's or something. I have a pizza oven that barely fits on our balcony, huge fire hazard. Anyway, it's going to be great. We're going to cook pizza, so you're all invited to that, and I'll get you the date at the end of this. And that's going to be our third service. So all this is designed so that we can be having conversations. Conversations. Because really, when it comes down to it, prayer is just a conversation. Prayer is merely being present with God where the only expectation is that you're present. It's a conversation with God where the only expectation is that you're present, that you're here, that you know I'm in the presence of God. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is all about. But I think we kind of lose the mystery and the beauty in that. Uh, we kind of look at prayer like it's just this, it's this little wing or it's this little clip of this thing called Christianity. Uh, we don't really lean too far into it. I think it looks like this. This is something I stumbled upon this week. Do we have a picture of the rock? Not the rock Dwayne Johnson, but this rock. Um, uh, this is a 22-pound uh, a rock that was found in Michigan uh, that they literally were just using as a doorstop. It was in a farm. Uh, it landed. It's a meteorite. They figured it out because uh, some scientists came over and he's like, that is not a normal rock. And they went, well, it's just been here. And he said, when did it get here? And the farmer who bought the place in 1930 replied, well, it fell out of the sky. <laughs> and it made, 
and I quote, a heck of a bang. <laughs> so they just decided to take that and move it to a door where it stood for over 70 years, just hanging out, propping a door open. And when they finally appraised it, they found it was worth over $100,000. The scientists that looked at it said it was the most priceless specimen they had ever seen in their lives. Because I think we often are using prayer like a doorstop when it's the most priceless specimen we could use in our entire lives. I've seen all sorts of prayer and all sorts of creative ways, and I think it all belongs. There's some stuff where, obviously, we're not going to be destructive in it. Um, but I, I once led worship uh, at this at the huge, uh, it was a South Asian uh, conference, and they were all uh, Asian Americans, and they were there. Uh, and it was a little bit more of a charismatic crew, but there were thousands, like 5,000 people uh, and I come in, this little white boy uh, who has no idea what prayer looks like in this culture, uh, was just leading worship, playing like Chris Tomlin songs or something back then. And I, I launched into, okay, well, this is classic worship leader, which is really just a chance to get you all to bow your head so I can click the pedals and tune my guitar. But uh, <laughs> what it was, was I was like, okay, let's pray. And I, I was like, if we could just bow our heads, let's, let's pray together. And as soon as I said that, I expected, because this is the culture that I'm from and the, the sort of model of prayer that I was given, uh, that everyone was going to just let me pray. And so they, they put their heads down, and everybody starts praying out loud. Everybody. I just picture that kind of mentally, 5,000 different voices all praying out loud, praying to God. And I thought it was so funny. I, I walked off stage, and I asked the pastor, I was like, well, what, I mean, what was up with that? Is that normal? He's like, yeah, wait, you expect you'll just pray and everyone will listen? I was like, I guess, I guess you're right. Like, it all kind of belongs. It can be creative. It can be as creative as we want it to be. I, I think just last week we talked about how, uh, we talked about spaces we don't believe love belongs in. Uh, and the answer to that was, yes, God does. So love doesn't belong there. Love doesn't belong on that cross. Love doesn't belong in that brothel. Love doesn't belong in all the spaces that we think love can't go. God invades and says, yes, God can. And I think that's the same uh, with prayer. We kind of often think of it as this, just this one thing. But truly, if it's just being present with God, prayer can be any number of things. And we can mess with it, and we can tweak with it, and we can have fun with it. And it can be creative, and it can be beautiful, and it can be awesome. And here's the biggest thing. It does not have to be boring. <laughs> How often have you had that family member at Thanksgiving or something who prays for like 25 minutes? And that might just be me. I have a lot of pastors in my family. But just <laughs> that, that idea that prayer could be an exciting, beautiful thing, not just this boring kind of mundane thing that we do, but actually coming into the presence of God, just recognizing it's not asking God to come in here. It's just sort of going like, God, I know you're in here, and because of that, I'm going to act in a way that is, that is prayerful. We do this in, in almost every other medium. We twist things. We create We create new mediums. This is my favorite. Twitter is a, um, is a microblogging site, or at least that's what it started out to be. Uh, I've been on Twitter since it was like in its infant stages, where on my flip phone, I would literally text in the tweet. Uh, and and it, it, I've seen it evolve over time, and I've seen people use it for, now it's sort of like a news source. Uh, people use it to promote their businesses, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what's awesome and what's the only redeemable part of Twitter in my mind at this point is that people have used it for some amazingly creative stuff. Uh, this is my favorite Twitter handle of all time. Uh, do we have that picture there? Uh, this is called, Is Today Ted Danson's Birthday? <laughs> And every day, it tweets out, today is not Ted Danson's birthday, until it is 
Ted Danson's birthday. Imagine scrolling through your feed of just awful news source stuff and just seeing today is not Ted Danson's birthday. Every time I see that, I go, there's hope for the world because someone has used this medium in a creative and beautiful way. And then the day that it is Ted Danson's birthday, like that's going to be amazing. But for now, someone figured out a way to use Twitter that I find incredibly awesome. And I think that we need to do that with prayer. We need to be creative with this. And here, how's this for creative? I was thinking about it the other day uh, as I was reading through the Gospels. If we define prayer as just being present with God and just the only, the only thing you need to do is to be present, uh, then every time we read the Gospels and every instance that Jesus speaks or someone's talking to Jesus, those are prayers. They're in the presence of God and they're talking back and forth. Every time Jesus tells a parable or heals someone or drives something out, all of that is a prayer. That's how creatively we can think of these. So think of all of the radical stuff Jesus did in his life in the presence of all of us, and then think about that and say, wow, that can be prayer. And that's also how God answers prayer. You know what's really infuriating about Jesus? If you ever ask him a question, especially if they ask him a question in the Gospels, he would almost never give an answer. There are only three definitive yes or no answers that Jesus gives in all four of the Gospels. Only three. The rest are questions or they're stories. They lead you on to something bigger. So when you think about prayer and we think about, I'm not getting anything out of this or I don't feel an answer, it's most often the correct response, the correct answer is more questions, more story, more stuff for you to unpack, more beauty for you to behold. It's not just a yes or a no. An answer isn't just a definitive thing. An answer could be just like, well, you need to sit on that for a longer period of time. I believe that that, uh, it, that response, there's no greater story uh, in the Bible of Jesus being present with someone where we really see the heart of God and the heart of God when we're praying to God. And that's the story of Lazarus. So uh, Lazarus, uh, it, it's a very famous story of him coming back from the dead. Uh, but I think that might be the, most, the, or the least interesting part of that story as I've gotten older. Um, that's amazing, and that's so cool, and that's, that's, that's a huge revelation that, that Jesus did that. But what I've found as I've gone through more and more hurt in my life and more and more experience in my life, more joy in my life, is that actually the story leading up to the Lazarus thing is actually way more interesting. Because we see what Jesus does in a, in a moment of intense sadness and loss. We see how he responds. And this is how he's fine. He goes to uh, Mary and Martha, who are the uh, sisters of Lazarus, uh, and he, he walks them. He waits four days, which, again, is like, if we're thinking about this in context of prayer, that's sort of like, the, how often have we experienced praying just nothing, and then four days, like, oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, he waits four days. We don't really know why. And then he comes uh, to find Lazarus, and he says, hey, Lazarus is asleep, and we're going to go wake him up. And so he goes down to Lazarus's home, uh, he encounters their family there, and he encounters the sisters, and the sisters are just livid, and rightfully so. And both of them say, Lord, if you had only been here, I know, I know that you would have saved him, that he wouldn't be dead right now. And so this is where the story gets very, very interesting, and we need to pay attention to it in the context of how God speaks with us and how God works with us. And we need to be validated that sometimes it's okay to just go, God, you didn't show up. Or at least I didn't feel like you showed up. It's called a lament or a petition, and the Psalms are full of them. You read through the Psalm, 
like it's like listening to a, a dashboard confessional album. It's just up and down emotional emo stuff, right? It's just it's it's everywhere. All of that belongs though. So this is what happens. Uh, this is the first scripture of the day, and this is this Jesus talking. When Jesus saw her weeping, she's crying because her brother is dead, and she says, Lord, if you'd only been here. And the Jews had come along with her also weeping. So the Jews, that, that sort of very awkward statement, uh, it refers to a crowd, and possibly, quite possibly, a very large crowd. And so this is a picture of not only Mary and Martha weeping and crying, these two people that lost something, but an entire crowd sees that, and then they also start crying. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation where someone starts to lose it and you go like, oh no? I remember the first time as a kid I saw my dad cry and I went like, that's not supposed to happen. And then it's just, you know, boom. And this, this whole crowd reacts to the situation because they're seeing death and they're lost and they're crying. And so Jesus sees both the crowd, this immense crowd of people and Mary and Martha weeping. And then this is what happened. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Here's the crazy part. Our prayers can do that to the creator of the universe. Our prayers have the potential to, to deeply move and trouble God. And it says, uh, where have you laid him, he asked him. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Now, here's what's cool about that. He goes on to heal Lazarus, he even says, come out, and Lazarus walks out, and he's healed, which must have been a really weird day for everybody involved. Um, but what, what's incredible about this is that we have a picture, and I don't think there's a whole lot of other pictures of this in world religion, of, of a God that cries with us. I think so often we just want God to prevent things from happening to us. Like I, a lot of our prayers are just like, God, please don't let that happen. Please don't let this happen. It's prevention. I, this is a quippy little thing that my Southern Baptist people would love, but there is no such thing as divine prevention. There's only such thing as divine intervention, right? We have divine intervention. We have intervention all over the scriptures, all over. We have it, as David talks in the Psalms about, my Lord is my shepherd, he, he walks me through, lets me lie on green pastures. He's still walking you through all of this stuff. The story of Moses is that God literally parts the Red Sea, but he invites you, you have to walk through it. You have to come through that. God works through things as much as he works to try and run interference in your life. He works through your pain. He transforms it. That's the whole point. It's not an avoidance of pain. And so often, I think Christianity gets bubbled down to, if you, if you just say these magic words, you're going to be happy, and you won't have to worry about this, and life won't be painful, and that's just not in there at all. It, it, Christianity and Jesus is about a transformation of your pain. It's a validation of your hurt, of your sorrow, of the, of the experience that you're going to go through in life. It's, it's saying that means something, and you can make it mean something. You can make it mean something. That's the whole Christian journey. Uh, I'm doing this uh, CFDM course right now to become a spiritual director, uh, and it's really, it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm reading all this really fun stuff about Desert Fathers, and I'm just I'm geeking out and nerding out all together. Uh, my favorite time was the first sort of grouping. It's a cohort of people, about 20 people, um, and we all came together, and it, it, it's that, 
that moment that you walk in and you instantly kind of start to categorize people, that's what I was going through. So I walked in at the very first thing and I looked around the room and I said, oh, this person is this person. This person obviously doesn't believe what I believe. They're probably some crazy person. This person's this person, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the most remarkable thing happened. The, the very first thing you're supposed to do when you enter this is that you're supposed to tell a 10-minute version of your story. This is where I got this idea to do the five-minute story. You just tell a 10-minute version of your story. And for some people, that's incredibly frightening. For someone that likes to talk like me, I was like, I only get 10 minutes? No, I, I, but 10 minutes and just boil it down uh, to, to like the, the major hits of your life. And as people went around and they told their 10-minute story, all of a sudden, all of that categorization, all of that sort of like, you believe this, you believe this, so we're not going to be friends, all of the, the pretense starts to fall away starts to go away. Because all of a sudden, you're hearing people's story. And every story, I kid you not, they didn't include the moments where they're like, and that's when I got that promotion, or that's when I, uh, that's when I won, 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 won. No. Every story, and the part that deeply moved everyone, was when they would share their hurt and their pain and their struggle moments. And that's when I got that diagnosis. And that's when the doctor walked in the room and his face was like this. That's when I lost the baby. All of those kind of moments catapulted relationship. All of a sudden, you weren't dealing with just small talk, chit-chat stuff. You were actually in people's lives because they let you in. Because they let you in. I used to write, uh, I used to be a very successful unpaid blogger, um, but I would write uh, for a bunch of different publications, and uh, one of them, the, the Huffington Post, and... Um, and that was the one that would really kind of take my stuff the most. And so I'd submit to them all the time. And I would submit stuff that I thought I had just, I had done a groundbreaking work. Like, this one, this is going to be crazy. Uh, and it would get like zero hits. But I tell you the truth, every time I would open up and tell a personal story or use something from my life, those would skyrocket and those would take me like 10 minutes to write. That's the stuff we really, really care about. Information is awesome, and we can pull apart this Bible, and we can look, and I'm a major fan of that. I love digging for like the crazy historical context and all those kind of moments, uh, but that's just information. And like I've said before, information can't love you. We have to actually read the stories of this personal God and offer ourselves up uh, in that kind of way. People, I mean, even uh, Chelsea and I lost uh, our baby last year, uh, as a lot of you know. Um, and it was shocking, the amount of people who were like, why are you talking about that? How can you be so open? Uh, and the truth is, it's like I'm, I'm open because God's walking me through this, and I, I feel like the more I share this story, the more it helps people. People came out from the woodwork going like, that same thing happened to us, and I never wanted to talk about it. When we're open and we actually share the stuff, it's really cooking in our lives, the stuff that really defines what's going on. We're letting, not only just letting people in so you can have deeper relationships, but your openness can help people. Famous author talks about it like this. He says, uh, sharing your openness, sharing your, your vulnerability, all of that kind of stuff is like that moment in class when a kid raises their hand and you have had that same question, but you were too embarrassed to raise your hand and ask the question, and that kid raises his hand, asks the question, and you feel like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm completely validated because they were brave enough to ask the question. 
And I think if you look through Scripture, we see Jesus being brave enough to kind of step into those really tense moments. And, and that opens the door for us to say, like, that's actually the call for us to do too. It's to step into that uncomfortable stuff. But we're really, really, really good, especially as American Christians, at hiding stuff. That's the go-to thing, especially in churches, is I hide all of the crazy stuff that I really am going through. Uh, and I will present to you with the nice, shiny version of my life. Uh, but that's, again, that's just not, that's not in there. And I think a big reason that we've, we've, we've learned to hide stuff so well uh, is because of this, this overarching um, sort of idea of prayer as this deeply personal and only you get to experience it type of thing. Uh, I love the idea of a quiet time. I love the idea of a prayer journal. All that kind of stuff is really cool. Uh, I grew up with it. But uh, this, this may be a little bit mind-blowing. In the Lord's Prayer, when, when Jesus uh, tells his disciples, they actually ask him, like, how do we pray? Uh, there's no I or me, or anything in that prayer. It's all us and our, our Father. Uh, prayer is actually supposed to be for others, for people. Uh, but we've sort of bubbled down Christianity to be very personalized uh, and very, he's in my heart, which is a deeply disturbing thing to say because he's in all of our, but I'm inviting him to me, it's me, me, me. Um, this is actually a Bible that I stumbled upon this week. This is the personalized Bible. Do you have a picture of that? It's your personalized Bible. It's $30. And what they'll do, it, over 7,000 times in Scripture, if there's any I or me or you's, they'll insert your name into it. Uh, over 7,000 times. So you'll be reading through the Scripture, and your name will come up like a bunch. Like, yeah. Our Josh. Oh, that, that would be... The, it, it's frightening, but... That's kind of where we've gotten to. And this, is a, this, is, this website was really nice, and they're selling these $30 Bibles, man. It's a, it's a cash business because we've kind of gotten there. In an uncomfortable way, we've made it just about us. And in an ancient context, when, when they're praying and when they're hearing these stories that Jesus is telling, it's never really an individual thing. It's always about the whole community. There's this idea in ancient Jewish culture called Shem. And Shem is your name, but it's not just your name. It's, it's your family's name, it's your community's name. It's not even just like a name that you say out loud, but it's an identity that is shared with your entire community. So-and-so over here bakes the bread, so-and-so over here works the field, so-and-so over here does the cattle, so-and-so over here is the blacksmith, and we all need each other. And so in this honor and shame-based society, if one person the blacksmith goes off and has like a wild weekend or whatever, that would bring shame to the, not just him, and they wouldn't just go, well, that's all on Bill over there. It would actually affect the entire community. The entire community would be shamed. Everybody in it. That's how connected and deeply woven they were. So when Jesus tells stories about like the Good Samaritan and stuff like that, our habit is to insert ourselves in there like it's a movie and we're playing one of the characters, right? But their version of it would be to see it from like a helicopter view and they would see the entire identity and the entire story and what this one individual does brings shame to one thing and what this one individual does brings shame to the other entire community. That's Shem. And that's an idea that unfortunately we've lost. Shem really isn't a part of our day-to-day -day lives. We, don't have, we might have a family identity. That might be the closest thing uh, that we have. But Shem is the idea of the entire community. 
just giving it like I'm an American. That'd be the, the, the example of modern day Shem, and that's deeply divided and deeply broken. Um, and the Greek word for like you and I and we, those are all extremely complex, and we in English only really have one word for you. But actually, the words that are used for you a lot of time in the Greek New Testament are closer, and this is where my southern relatives really get it right, they're actually closer to y'all. Uh, it, it would be not you, but you all, y'all. Uh, and so I would like to create a y'all Bible, and I'm going to sell it for 50 bucks. No. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's the idea. We, we have to start reading scripture in a more corporate sense for the entire community. And not only just that, uh, but our prayer works like that too. Our prayer should be like outward. Jesus tells the story about when you sit at a banquet, take the lowest seat at the table. Don't try and take the seat of honor at the table, but take the lowest seat. Now think about that as you pray. What if we took ourselves out of the center, but then we put ourselves in the lowest seat and we started praying for all of those people in our lives that are over there? And even more than that, what if we actually kind of shut up and we just listened? We just let God speak uh, for once. I think the coolest story that you could relate to prayer uh, is the prodigal son. I, and, and this whole sermon I labeled prodigal as prayer because I think the, the version of the prodigal son that we're used to is, is focused on shame and then redemption, and that's beautiful, and that's part of it. Uh, but I want to frame it this morning sort of in the way that we experience the divine or the way that we actually encounter God uh, and the way that we talk to God. Uh, so this is the story of the prodigal son. We have that scripture. Um, and, and please focus on this, too. Many good translations in the Bible will translate the parable of the prodigal son into the parable of the lost son. And the reason for that is that God isn't focused on the prodigal part. It's the lost part, as we're going to see as we read through this. So uh, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, if this person, we have to kind of give the cultural context here for this actually to land. So, and I've, I've gone through this a number of times, so if you've heard me go on my prodigal rant, I'm, I apologize, but we, we need to get some cultural stuff for the people in this room who haven't heard it. This is akin uh, to asking your father to die, number one, and you'll hear that in a lot of sermons, and pastors will throw that one out. Uh, but the deeper reality here is that this father, if he's this wealthy and wealthy enough to just cash out half the inheritance, is probably among the wealthiest people in the community. And he's probably a leader of some kind if he has that kind of wealth. So you've got a leader, let's just call this like a CEO or a, a, maybe a pastor, whatever you want to do, but then his son goes to him, and he's supposed to be this sort of pinnacle of the community, and his son does the unspeakable act of saying, I want my inheritance now. I'm not sticking around uh, for you to die. I, I want it right now. So basically, in my mind, you're dead. And so what would happen is when a son or daughter would do something like this severe, which is, this is, for Jesus's hearers, this would be like, how can you even say that out loud? It would be like a rated R scenario. Like, you can get the kids out of here, right? It was that serious. Uh, when someone would do this, the family would sit shiva, which means they would actually throw a funeral for you to declare and to mourn you for a whole week. They would just say, that son is dead. And so we need to mourn that, but then that's the healing process, and we're moving on, and they remain dead. So 
uh, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distance. I love that not long after that line because that implies that after he said this terrible thing to his father, they're just living under the same roof for a couple days. The tension would be very high. So uh, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole uh, country and he began to be in need. So this is what we focus on uh, most of the time. And that's the sin idea, right? That's the stuff that he's doing wrong. Uh, but that's not the whole story. So next slide there. Uh, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, as we all do at one point, uh, with the pigs eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him. Now, this is where I think it becomes a prayer. He's practicing his prayer. It's like, what am I going to go to God? How am I going to go to the father or my God so that I can be redeemed and at least get back in some kind of good graces? How can I prep myself to go to God? And so he begins to prep his prayer. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. In Jesus' prayer, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. His prayer does not start out with, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's not the way our prayer begins, but this is the way that the prodigal begins because he's so worked up about what he's done. Uh, sorry, next slide there. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So, oh, is there another slide? Or is that the last one? Yep. Okay, good. Uh, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please note before he could even get these words out of his mouth, the father had already hugged him and kissed him, put a ring and a cloak around his neck. The father said, oh, no, I'm sorry. He hasn't put the robe on yet. Uh, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. That's the God that we're praying to. That's the Our Father in the very first line of that. So the God that runs, silly. But there's a bigger part of this. We're, we're, we're taking that personal again, right? So that's the God that I'm praying to, and that's the response that I will get the, the hold, right? I will get the hug, I'll get the kiss, I'll get the robe, and then there, there's going to be a party. Here's the way in that Shem, in this society, this would work. There is no way, no way that that son could walk through the town without being recognized and without being followed. <laughs> You want to talk about what would draw a crowd. This is the biggest scandal this community has ever seen. And all of a sudden, he's going to be walking through the village towards his father's house. And anybody who loves a good gossip story is going to go, we have got to follow and see what's going on there. And so this crowd would have followed him. And that's why, folks, they can throw a party. Because <laughs> they have enough people to kill a fattened calf and people are there. So they're following this to see what the father's going to do. If you are one of those people, you are thinking, we are about to see a bloodbath. <laughs> We're about to see this father, this father just kill this son, literally kill him. And what they must have saw would have knocked them over. 
they would have seen this pinnacle, wealthy member of the community running in a silly fashion. You did not run. That was not honorable. Running towards this son that had so gravely put shame on not just the father, but the entire community. All of them were shamed because of what he did. And so all of them, because they're experiencing that communal shame, are like, he needs to get his. And the father's response is to fundamentally flip what shame and honor mean. And he runs and he grabs him. And then the whole community is invited to a party because the father is a smart guy. And he says, to really change these people's minds, we need to invite them all here and we need to throw a feast and people need to see this and sit with it. Just imagine, just imagine the conversations happening around that table at that feast. If they've seen that level of forgiveness, that level of openness, that level of vulnerability from the Father, imagine all of the little tiny things that must have been going on in town that then they'd have to go like, well, I mean, if he can forgive that, then, yeah, Bill, sorry I stole your goat. Like, I mean, you, you just, you'd have, to, you'd have to come together in a different way. What the Father does here is he's throwing the snowball down the hill. He's saying this is going to redefine something, and it's going to cause momentum throughout the entire community, and now the entire community is forced to be more open. Because openness always begets more openness. You just being open and vulnerable is going to let people in in a way that then they can, and it just begins to spread, and it begins to multiply. I, uh, the other night when it was like pouring down rain, um, I have a fascination with walking in the rain with an umbrella just because it's a weird safety thing for me, so I love to like walk with an umbrella. So I'm walking uh, as the rain is just like hammering down, um, and I'm going to pick up uh, Mendocino Farms right around the corner from our house, uh, and it's delicious. And so I was walking, and uh, I, I come across, like you have to go kind of past where St. Monica's is um, and then take a left, and, and right in there there's like this rec center, uh, and the rain is just, it's really bad. Like, it's, it's coming down in a way that's like, it's stupid for me to be walking out there with just an umbrella. Uh, but I look over and I see that there's just this group of like 20 people, this big group of people uh, sleeping outside, experiencing homelessness. Uh, and they're there, and, and I, I kind of pivot, because I'm like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get food. Maybe I could just grab them something to eat. Um, so I, I talk to the two guys that are there in front, and I'm like, hey, I'm just... I'm running over here. Do you guys want anything to eat? Uh, this isn't a story about me being a good Samaritan or anything like that. It, I'm an idiot. But anyway, uh, I, I'm like, hey, do you, can you get in there? Like, yeah, can you just get us something hot? Like, anything hot would be awesome. I'm like, cool. We'll see what we can do. Uh, but it's around like 8.30 at this point, and it's, the restaurant's kind of shutting down. So I get there. I get my pickup order. And I was like, hey, what, what kind of, do you have any, like, soups left or anything like that? Um, and they're like, yeah, you want a soup? And I was like, yeah, can I get a couple of them? And then they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, actually, how many soups can I buy? And then they looked at me, and they're like, why are you doing this to us? They're literally like locking the door. And like, well, the last thing we want to do is hop on your weird craving. Are you high? Anyway, um, so I, I, I was just like, no, there's just a couple people like sleeping outside, and I was just going to grab them something. Uh, and right then, the manager just kind of looks over, and he's like, wow. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to send you home with all of the salads that we have and all of the soups that we have because we we're going to have to get rid of them tomorrow anyway. And so it, it went from me getting like a little thing of soup for this group of people to like I'm carrying bags of Mendocino Farms outside. Uh, and they just loaded me up with all of this stuff. And I got to just drop it off and just say, like, all right, love you guys, see ya, and, and dip. Um, 
But what really struck me in that was that it wasn't, it wasn't me that did the main thing there, right? Like, I was not the person uh, that bought this truckload of food and took it to them. All that had to be done was someone had to take the first step and be open. And, and then the snowball goes down the hill. Openness begets more openness. And so in your relationship with God and in your prayer life and as a corporate, a church-wide thing, in our prayers, I'm just praying that we'll be more open. Because openness is going to beget more openness. All it takes is taking that first step with that human being. All it takes is taking that first step with God. But we have to be more open and more vulnerable because the more open and the deeper we go and the more vulnerable we are, the more we can find in God's love. And there is no end to the depth of God's love. It's just the fear of having to like step in that and fall into it, surrender into it completely and be completely vulnerable and just say, like, okay, here's all of my, for lack of a better term, we're in a progressive church here, shit, right? All of my stuff. Here's it all. And just falling in. There's a reason we call it falling in love. Because you are surrendering all that you are to that other person, and they are doing the same so that you can both fall deeper in relationship to each other. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm so grateful for uh, how open you are to us and how that openness is totally available uh, to us. And I pray this morning as we approach the table that we would, uh, we would truly lean into that openness, that body broken for us, that blood poured out for us.